This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Handling your veto point player. Edo Firebreaks. Still more dramatic interaction. And the 18 and a half minute gap. Okay, Ken, we've been summoned, I mean, invited, to attend another gloriously gloomy party at Castle Slogar. Remember, keep your eyes peeled and your reflexes ready. The Slogar's festering festivity involves more cleavers than confetti. Where did everyone disappear to? Did they all get ludicrously lost in the hedge maze again? I think I heard muffled laughter, or was that sobbing? It's coming from behind that door. Of course it's locked. Just our luck. Hold your skeletal horses, Ken. Look at the floor. The tiles have markings, just like in that puzzle game book I have. Unhappy birthday at Castle Slogar. Aha, found the book. How will a book about a birthday gone wrong help us find a party that might not even exist? Well, in Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar, things go awfully awry during Melissa Slogar's latest ninth birthday party. Guests are lost and Lord Slogar is missing. Sound familiar? Whoa, that's eerily similar. Wait, the book has a map. Oh, but it's blank. How do we navigate with that? Patience, Ken. The book describes each room and the exquisitely eerie obstacles you have to overcome. You can even use a special website to check your answers, get hints, and unveil the map as you explore. So we need to solve a puzzle in this room to get to the party in the next room. You're catching on now. Let's see. I remember the foyer puzzle involved. And then you... And just my... And voila! Look, the password! And the door! It's unlocked! Now let's go party like it's 1899! Hey, uh, can I borrow that puzzle game book? No way! It's mine! But you can get your own copy of Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar from Atlas Games at atlas-games.com slash b-d-a-y. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut, where beloved Patreon backer Joshua Randall asks, Other than the standard extreme measure of throwing them out, what do you do with a player who enjoys acting as a veto point on everyone else's plans and actions? And in a related question, he asks, How do you deal with the cry of, My character wouldn't do that. And I think that's kind of two slightly different questions. And they often overlap, but yeah, they are. And I am going to push back a bit and say, that's not an extreme measure any more than the extreme measure of don't go to the movies with people who talk in the movies is an extreme measure. It's just basic self care. That's what I say. Yes. It would make an extremely short segment. However, (laughs) if that was our only answer, Oh, I thought that was the point. Right. So saying apart from this, this extreme measure, I think what you are positing when you ask this question is that the person is corrigible, right? That right. So they can uh, be reached. They, they can be reached because sometimes that person does need to be thrown up because they're not going to respond to your attempts to fix them. And so the question I think you want to ask yourself, first of all, is why are they doing this? Is it an emotional need to have power in their lives that they are taking out on you and the rest of their group, uh, which probably suggests that they're not in the corrigible category, or is there some other sort of block that they have that is uh, causing them to sh- shoot ideas down, right? Because you can be the person in the meeting who always shoots everybody else's ideas down without necessarily doing that in order to screw people. Well, sometimes you just, that person just has a, a sort of a, a negative perspective on things or as a pessimist fault finding capacity. Right. And so why are they doing this is the, uh, the first question. So for example, one of the problems may be that there is a disconnect in their theory of what is possible in your game, right? That they're not shooting down everybody's ideas because they enjoy being a veto point. They just can't 
think of any good ideas themselves or think that anybody else's idea is good. So those are very different things. And so if that's the issue, I think often you have to remind them that the logic that they're applying to the situation is a real world logic when you are playing an adventure genre game. And that is tough for people who there are lots of people in our wider nerd community who are hyper logical people with sort of a, a negative framing on problems. And, you know, they're the ones who like, why doesn't Star Trek have realistic distances between places? And the thing is, no, that's because it wouldn't be interesting. Try and have an interesting response is a little bit challenging to get them to do. I have a, a solution in mind, but I can, I bet you do too. Well, I mean, I think that you, when you get to the question of, are they corrigible, you're getting to my other standard answer after throw them out, which is talk to them, you know, not as a part of a, of a group inquisition, just talk to them one-on-one -on -one, GM to player friend to friend and say, look, it seems like you keep shooting down everyone's ideas and therefore the game isn't going anywhere. What's that about Steve and Steve will either say, well, they're all stupid. They have stupid ideas and they'll all get us killed. At which point you can say, you understand you're playing a game where you go into a dungeon and fight monsters on purpose, right? That this, you, you know, you've got the, the, the central concept of the game, right? Because otherwise, maybe there is a problem. Maybe they're like, oh, I thought we were playing, you know, a game where we're all about counting encumbrance. And then you say, maybe you'd be happier in the Torchbearer game. Or you say, well, I'm not ever going to run Torchbearer. What would you like to play in a dungeon crawling game? What sorts of things would meet your approval and see if they can be met, if not halfway, at least somewhere closer to what they think of as fun play while still honoring the rest of the group's intentions and your intentions as the GM. The other possibility is that they are vetoing because they wanted to play a whole different genre of thing. They wanted to play courtly romance or courtiers or urban underworld thieves or some other version of the game. And they were to their mind shanghaied into playing a dungeon adventure game. And that's a miscommunication between yourself and them. And you need to clarify that anyway, just so that they will have fun. And you can say, Oh, I, I didn't get that. And then maybe you can just say, we'll add an urban adventure next time, or we'll do this, that, the other thing. And then hopefully they will say, okay, I'll, uh, I'll lower my uh, legitimate response to I'm a soft bodied elf. I don't want to go in the stinky dungeon and we'll move on with the game the way that, you know, everyone is else is sort of apparently willing to do. And you can sort of, I hope, uh, as you say, it, it presumes their corrigibility, establish where the original miscommunication happened and communicate around it, right? Communication is the key to basically any kind of human relationship and certainly to a GM player relationship. And as I reiterate time and again, uh, a thing I always say is you're not dealing with dolphins. You all have a common language. Talk about it like grownups. Right. And one way to talk about it is if this is a uh, person is genuinely, I never see an idea I like, put the onus on them to say, well, you know, you have to do something. What is the least terrible plan? And if the person is coming from a, a world of realistic logic, in the realistic world, nobody has a good plan. Mm -hmm. Everyone always goes with the least worst plan. What's the least worst plan? Right. The I've never seen an idea I like person. Their, their actual threat is not just that they veto things and frustrate the other players who want to do things, but that they convince the other players that the perfectly reasonable plans A, B, and C that you assumed they would take, they talk them out, they successfully talk them out of wanting to do them. And again, that's about reminding people, as we both already mentioned, that it's the adventure genre, it's not the uh, real world. This brings us to the other uh, person, the, uh, the my character wouldn't do that person. And sometimes they are exactly the I've picked a character who wouldn't do that in order to assert power over the rest of the group by saying no to them. And so, Again, assuming that they're corrigible at all, the response to that is, this is a story about characters who do move forward, who mm -hmm. do who take do an go action. go in the dungeon. <laughs> so your job is to create a character who would do that. When in other forms of fiction, authors and screenwriters create characters who have a reason to move forward into the narrative. And you don't have to move forward into a 
particular narrative, you have a number of narratives you can pick, but you have to pick one. Tell me why you do that. And if your character doesn't do the sorts of typical things that characters do in this genre, tell me about the new character that you've created. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, the the alternate to that is uh, instead of throwing the person out, throw the character out. <laughs> right. And the and the real time to, to hit that, ideally, uh, is during your session zero when they're coming up with their character and everyone's coming up with their character together and you're all sort of figuring out in your head, in your heads, in sort of imaginative space, what the campaign is going to look like because... Right. So you they can, want to play a paladin and say, no, you can't right, be a paladin. Right. Or, or if they, if they say I'm playing a soft body germaphobe elf, you may say, why are you going to go in dungeons? That's full of spiky things and germs. And then they, at that point, either have to say, oh, because my, my brother died in a dungeon and I'm every day trying to live up to my terror. Or they say, oh, yeah, that's a good point. I'll play a, uh, a callous-bodied uh, dungeon-delving dwarf, and then we'll all go in the dungeon. It'll be great. Thanks for catching that disconnect. Right. There's a subset of the my character wouldn't do that, which is the person who wants to play a deliberately underpowered or incompetent character, mm -hmm. which I th is related to this, but I think is another segment that we should mm -hmm. do in a future episode. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's the sort of thing that a good session zero and... This is why, you know, the temptation, and I get it, I've done it by for myself as a GM, uh, is, is to treat session zero as sort of a hanging out, shooting the crap, you know, having a couple of beers, everybody's cool, and just sort of vibing, but it is still your job as the game master to be thinking ahead and be thinking, how are these characters going to interact with the game, with either the game in general, like you should not ever make a character like that in Gamma World. They will die, you know, first step out of the commune. Or uh, how will they react to the specific Gamma World scenario that I have, which is in fact going to require, you know, a hard moral choice or the willingness to gun down rabbit people or whatever. And I can see coming down the pike this character being a problem. Ideally, not this player being a problem, because again, see my previous, previous, previous answer, but you should then be able to say, oh, just uh, maybe don't take radiation sickness as your weakness. You're going to be going to a lot of high radiation areas and also don't take pacifist because there's going to be a lot of murdering done. Or if you do take pacifist, explain to me why, like Kane in Kung Fu, he said in a ref any reference that will appeal to literally nobody, you still keep getting into fights, despite your theoretical pacifism. Explain that. And then you can ha start that wheel rolling in the player's head and in your head and start thinking, how can we make this character spice to the game instead of an obstacle to the game? So the question then is, if you're going to catch this in session zero, and sometimes you won't, what are the red flags other than they want to play a paladin? <laughs> and the other obvious red flag is I'm the troubled loner who uh, takes guff from no one and, uh, you know, someone who wants to play someone who would be a good solo character, but clearly they're signaling that they're not going to get along with the rest of the group. And so you're going to want to turn that around and say, so why d does this formerly troubled loner used to acting on their own meld with this group and forge a bond with them and listen to them sometimes? Are there other red flags you're going to want to look for in Session Zero? There is, uh, I guess... If you're talking about the sort of this world doesn't make sense player, hopefully their red flags will start appearing as you're explaining the game world. You're saying we're going to be traveling in our starship from star to star, such and such, such and such. And they say, you know, how are you dealing with time dilation? And you say, aha, here's how we're dealing with it. Not at all, unless you hit a uh, space anomaly that causes time dilation. There you go. Problem solved. And again, you also, as GM, should be cognizant of the sort of push glasses up on nose objections to your sort of game. Why don't they just leave the court of, of Imperial Japan and, and go wander around and, 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 you know, predate on Korea instead of try and put up with the emperor and his nonsense? Well, because it's a game about putting up with the emperor and his nonsense. It's not a game about raiding Korea as much fun as that other game might be. And so you hopefully can start dealing with these sorts of objections again in uh, session zero. And I think the red flag is the, you know, nitpicking with the fundamentals of uh, the story structure and the genre and the 
nature of the campaign, if I can use a, a term like that. Right. And the red flag on top of the red flag is that they resist your efforts to bring them into the fold, indicating that they are, in fact, not corrigible, mm-hmm. bringing us back to the original uh, solution that we weren't supposed to discuss. But we are discussing because it's the end of this segment and the beginning after this commercial of another one. Polygrain Press invites you to a reality-shattered mask ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-matched minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. The swords are sharp. The helmets are ornate, but the city is on fire and and the history hut is on fire because the history hut this time around is in Edo, uh, which of course uh, we all know is the name for Tokyo from the samurai era. And Ken, sometimes you and I will be hanging out uh, in person in fact, this is the genesis of this entire podcast, <laughs> and we'll get talking about something, and I will think to myself, this should be a podcast, or in this case, this should be a podcast segment. So I've heard you discourse on this uh, delightful bit of historical irony, which is a wonderful example of how a, a bureaucratic structure and laws that are meant to accomplish A wind up through a process of uh, human greed and folly ending up being the opposite of A, and that is the fire breaks of Edo. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Ken, what is weird about a decision to try and protect Edo from fire? Because, well, first of all, I understand Edo had a problem of being on fire. It did. And even for other Japanese cities, it was on fire probably four to five times more frequently than, you know, other Japanese cities in that era that we have records for, which is most of them because the Japanese were an inveterately good record-keeping people even back in the shogunate. Right. Good at recording fires, preventing fires. uh, Iffy. But Ito especially, and the theory is, first of all, it's much denser than other Japanese cities at the time. Obviously, all Japanese cities are basically made of wooden paper. That was true down to World War II. And uh, then, you know, something fixed that problem. But the period between 1603, when Ido was founded, and 1868, the end of the shogunate, there were 97 major fires in Ido. And uh, people call that the Flowers of Ido, in fact. It's so commonly noted. Uh, The specific climate, the, the notion of this sort of low, flat basin where uh, hot air from the south can can blow in, but there's still dry air coming down from the mountains. Maybe this is part of it. Maybe it's the, you know, just the fact that there was more people and therefore more fires being set for good purposes, for normal purposes. 
just increases your risk by a order of magnitude. Whatever it is, Edo is full of fire, and no fuller of fire was it than the great fire of the Maireki era in 1657, known as the Fire of Long Sleeves. And it was so called because a uh, young woman died in a kimono, and the kimono was passed to another young woman, and she died in it, and that kimono was sold again to a third young woman, and she died in it, and at this point, the temple authorities said, oh, here's your problem, you've got one of those death curse kimonos, let's burn that kimono, and they did, and guess what, Robin? <laughs> it did say death curse kimono It did right say death it. curse kimono right on the hem. So there we are. So the fire of long sleeves kills 108,000 people in Edo. It destroys 75% of the city, 160 daimyo estates, 350 shrines and temples, 750 bannermen residential compounds. And a bannerman is like a knight sort of structurally. They've got the authority to approach the shogun and do work for the shogun, but they're not nobles. And 50,000 merchant and artisan homes and Lord knows how many other sorts of homes and apartment buildings. So city's wrecked. So the uh, emperor, Maireki, through his shogun, gives the order that there will be what are called hiokechi, or fire protection zones, fire breaks, open space, and he designates about 20 of those, and some of that is just, well, where that daimyo's palace burned down, we're not going to let him rebuild, we're just going to leave it blank. Right. So that means it contains the fire, like right. any fire break in a forest fire today, by being further, you know, spaces make it harder for the flames and sparks to leap from one to another and set fire. So if there's right. a, a space, it's not a guaranteed, but there's less chance of the fire spreading yeah. and enveloping. Especially it. if it's not full of, you know, wood and paper the way right. that the rest of Edo is. Yeah. This city really needs fire breaks because it's flammable. Yes. And also the fire break is a place where everyone can gather in case of a fire. They're not going to sit in their, you know, combustible house. They have to sit somewhere. And so this sort of, Open space is another good option there, and it keeps, you know, paths to the uh, bridges and other exit points open. So it's it's all good urban design. Well right. done. So, so the fire break works. Uh, nothing ironic happens. End of story. End of story. Ito is safe forever. The other thing that he mandates is what are called hirokoji, which are widened streets and alleys. So alleys that are too narrow get widened, and you're not allowed to, you know, build stalls that extend out into the street. And between those two measures, as you say, uh, everything works great, and Ito is never again burned down in fire, except for two really big ones and about 80 other little ones. But we have really good records for one neighborhood, which is the Ito Bashi, which is the little area right near the bridge over the river. And this sort of triangular slot of space, it's right near the bridge, so you can get onto the bridge. It was all burned out, so it was empty, and the authorities said, well, here's what we'll do. We'll just take all the people who used to live there, we'll put them in little villages, little communes, little neighborhoods on either side of that bridge, uh, right near either side of the entrance to the bridge, and we'll just say, you guys have to keep the fire break open. Right. And this is the same neighborhood that has all the geisha houses, the brothels. Well, it does now, Robin, you're spoiling it. Previously, it just had, you know, uh, everything in it. But the uh, residents had to pay for patrols of the fire break. They had to pay to find lost kids. They had to pay to build a palisade around it. They had a lot of costs. Right. So they made preventing fires more expensive. Right. And, and so they said, here's your job because we let you settle here in this area, you have to keep the fire break open and pay to keep it clear. And we're going to pay the pension of the guy who's in charge of making sure that you do that. And the residents all said, oh, great. Thanks, the Shogun. And once the Shogun left, they counted up their money and they said, we are never going to be able to pay for all these patrols and everything that the Shogun wants unless we had some commodity that was both in high demand and could not be regulated by other authority. Oh, like this fire break, this huge zone of territory that it's impossible to get a building permit for because it would be illegal, but we run it now and we run the patrols who say what's illegal. Suddenly the problem has been solved. So they begin renting space in the fire break to peddlers and merchants. And within four years, there's 52 new shops built in the fire break. And these shops are selling all kinds of things. 
including, you know, used books. No fire threat there, Robin. Alcohol, again, no threat. I, I can't see a bar ever getting set on fire. That seems crazy talk. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So by uh, 1700, they have 107 new shops built in there, plus two new wharves and their facilities, including the city elders, who are the people in, who are in theory in charge of keeping this neighborhood in, in line. They say, oh, well, we have this big earthen berm around the fire break to stop fire from getting there. Well, you know what would also stop fire? Warehouses. So they knock down the earthen berm and build warehouses inside the earthen berm. Right. So now the fire break, which number one <laughs> job is to have nothing in it, right. now has everything in it. It has everything. And it keeps getting more fun because the people in the little village, they've got a good deal going, selling uh, licenses to put up shops. And so in 1707, the first batch of illegal shopkeepers files a complaint with the authorities to prevent those neighborhoods from selling more leases for illegal shops. They don't want the competition. And by the way, at the same time, the Teamsters Union has officially bargained for the right to build wagon yards and ox stables because they're like, look, we got to drag all this stuff over the bridge. We've got to have a place to put the oxen. And whoever's in charge of the dragging rule says, all right, I guess. And so they get to do it. So the complaint gets up to the Bafuku, the, the Shogun's office, and they say, hold on, there's not supposed to be anything in the fire break. Then they've got 107 shops in the fire break. They say, fire break? The whole job of the fire break <laughs> is to have nothing in it. You put everything in it. And then so it's like this, this is a, this is a, a violation of the Shogun's authority to do that. But on the other hand, you've been here for 50 years and we haven't stopped you. So, all right. No new shops. That's rule one. You're the 107 shops in the fire break, plus the ox yards, plus the wharves are all, you know, grandfathered in now, but no new shops. Yeah. It wasn't removed those, those shops that are not supposed to be in the fire break. It was no more shops. Other than no the, more shops. And also you have a monopoly now on being in the fire. Don't break. build houses in the fire break. This is our new rule. <laughs> yes. You can build a shop. That would be a terrible idea if someone broke that rule. <laughs> it has to be a stall so you can carry it away in case of a fire. To where? To the fire break? Shut up. Stop helping. Right. Because that's what you do when the city's on fire. You pick up your building and run with it. <laughs> and run towards to the fire break, which is where you already are. So yeah. anyway, it has to be a stall, and we see you. None of that nonsense. And so there we are. Problem solved. Only moderate building density in the fire break. So, of course, uh, Robin, obviously everyone obeys the Bakufu, and no one does any more building, except, of course, for the new storehouses which in a compromise, they say, well, it's built out of adobe and stone, so it's fireproof storehouses. Those are nice. And then that gets passed, and so they build more of those. They build a new shrine for all the people who live in the fire break. They can't let those people just not have a religion, Robin. So you need yeah, your, that's why they call it religion. You get to do whatever you want. Yeah, you have a haunted kimono. What are you supposed to do, burn it at home? I don't think so. So you uh, have a new shrine. And then with all this new crowds coming to the fire break for all the cool shops, people start putting in theaters from 1767. And this is where the geisha and the rest of the sort of entertainment, including my favorite archery booths. They're like booths at the midway. And it's like, hey, step up, handsome, try your luck. And they, they give them little bows to shoot at targets. But the ladies who hand you bows. Yeah, I'm sure they, I'm sure they weren't, weren't flaming arrows. No, they're not flaming arrows. I mean, there's going to be a torch so you can see it at night, but that's a different thing. But the ladies who hand you the bows are really hot. And sometimes they're like, this is a stall. I don't have to stick around here. I can go wherever. And then they're like, oh, wherever. We don't have any apartment houses for all the wherevering. So they start building those in 1775. So now we have apartment houses in the fire break, but don't worry, Robin, the shops are all stalls, except that they're not anymore. They start building little houses next to their stalls. It's just to sleep overnight in case I want to open early in the morning. And by 1780, they have a sumo training yard. And this finally gets everyone in trouble. The guy who opened the sumo training yard is one of the mayors, one of the city elders. Remember the guys who tore down the embankment to build warehouses in. Meanwhile, they're complaining that the warehouses in the embankment walls are cramped and uh, wet and they need to build new warehouses, knock those down and build new warehouses. And they're putting up petitions for that. And the, the government's like, oh, my Lord, what is happening? OK, all right. All right. New rule. New rule. No sumo training yard. That is ridiculous. You've got giant sumo guys. Right. Because if there's one thing in this story that's flammable, right. it's sumo. It's wrestlers. sumos. Sumos. And if there's one training. thing that is 
like a fire break, it's a large yeah. area for sumo wrestlers to <laughs> wrestle each other. Well, anyway, the sumos are, for whatever reason, the last straw. The, the, the city official who authorized the sumos, he's stripped of his status and exiled from Edo. He's turned into an outcast. By the way, outcasts, of course, are living in the fire break because guess what? You're not allowed to live anywhere else in Tokyo. Uh, there's laws, but no law about living in a fire break. So they just set up their little tents and whatnot there. That's a whole different thing. So they, they shut down the sumo thing and they say, all right, all right, all right, all right. All this other stuff can stay, but you have to put up a big signboard where we tell you what the fire regulations are. <laughs> Just do that. And they're like, no problem, the Shogun. As you can see from our extensive case file, everything has been done with the approval of one of your duly constituted authorities. And the Shogun's like, oh, we have no time for this. So they say, well, they've got the the sign up. I'm sure that's fine. But now that I've been down to the firebreak area and noticed we really need a place to build a lumber warehouse. And they were just talking about how we need new warehouses in the fire break. Yeah. We got rid of those flammable sumo wrestlers. So let's put lumber. In we have pipe. to store all this non-flammable untreated wood. That's what we have to do. But it would be handy if the bridge burned down to have a lumber warehouse just right here to rebuild it with. Ah, oh, what the heck? So in 1789, the last vestige of official recalcitrance collapses when the government builds a lumber warehouse in the fire break. And I guess the happy news is that all the bad fires after the great fire of 1657 are orders of magnitude less bad. So that's nice, but right. But that's just because there's no cursed kimono involved. It's got nothing to do with fire regulation. Right. Yeah. Those are just regular kimonos that people are burning and starting those fires. So I was not able to tell whether or not Edo Bashi itself had a fire rip through it or if, somehow the, you know, fools and uh, drunkards luck, they, they lucked out. I assume there were plenty of small fires because there was plenty of small fires all over Edo. But uh, this, Robin, is how uh, government can encourage industry. Oh, no, this was how uh, government laws are always obeyed and never interest captured. That's what it was about. So gaming wise, the first thing that comes to mind actually is like a, a board game or a mobile game where all of the players are racing to build stuff in the fire break. And under certain conditions, perhaps triggerable by your rival players, Mm -hmm. all the stuff that you've built in the firebreak can burn down. So that would seem fun to me. In the tabletop uh, realm, obviously, being in Edo uh, on the night when there's going to be a cursed kimono burning would be the obvious big disaster movie Mm -hmm. move to have. But also just a community that is based on this level of cynical upending of the intention of the rules Mm -hmm. that can just sort of be a fun background detail to uh, sort of a a campaign that is uh, centered in Edo. And every time you come back from an adventure, there's more stuff in the 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 firebreak. Oh, I I forgot one of my favorite things about the firebreak about 1720 ish is somewhere in the middle of the 18th. The people in the area whose job it was, remember, to maintain the firebreak and they have to fill out reports to the shogun and send it up to the bureaucrats every, you know, oh, yep, patrol still happened, still paid for it. Here we go. They stopped calling it a Hiokechi, a firebreak, and started calling it a Hirokoji, a widened street. <laughs> so they, they just snuck that into the paperwork. And so it's like, Oh, no, no, it wasn't a fire break. You're thinking of one of those other areas that's also full of illegal traffic. This is this is a widened street. And as you can see, it's a very wide alley, per se. I mean, some of the alleys off the alleys aren't that wide, but there we are. So I, I just like that. If the Shogun and the Emperor have absolute power, something in their official documents is said to be so, it's so. That's, yeah, right. That's, that's, that's just how just, that works. That's just the rules. But yes, the sort of, I mean... Itobashi, again, I think we know more about it because there just seems to have been more books written. Maybe Japanese scholars are super excited about it. But well, it's it where is, all the indolent writers and artists went to hang out. So yeah, it is absolutely a, you know, you read about this neighborhood and it's very much the, oh, this is where player characters hang out. This is where hot girls are, you know, doing archery. This is where there are people who are illegally uh, ripping off no theater and doing plays that you're not supposed to perform because, oh, no, we couldn't perform this at a legal theater. Fortunately, all of our theaters are built on the fire break, so they're illegal. So, sorry, can't do anything about it. So, there's lots of 
of that sort of energy happening. And it's very player character centric. And plus for a, a few years there, a few beautiful years, Robin, a sumo training yard. So yes, well, I'm sure the player characters invest in the sumo training yard. And then they're the ones who just no, this is the last, this, this is, is the, the last straw. The player characters are doing this. See. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's all the oil, Robin. That's what yeah. it is. It's the oil you have to put on the sumo guys. Right. Well, before this uh, podcast uh, bursts into flames from the excitement, it's time for a commercial and another segment. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. And it's once more time for Ken and Robin to recycle audio. This time around, we're going to wrap up our series uh, recycling the audio of the dramatic interaction panel from uh, Gen Con 2023 that I did uh, with my boon companions, Emily Cambius and John R. Harness. And uh, as I was doing last week, I'm going to introduce the questions. And this time, there's uh, actually, there's a nice big chunk of uh, discussion, a, a wide-ranging discussion, the best kind of discussion that uh, breaks out keying off a comment from the audience of someone asking if drama system is basically if designing it or even running it as part of a secret agenda to get your players in all of your game sessions to interact better. Secret agenda, yes or no? Okay. <laughs> so I bet you didn't, neither of you had this happen when you played because you're m more steeped in the story game angle than my players are. But absolutely this happened with my players. And absolutely it was part of a, an agenda. And they argue way better now that they're huge drama system mm -hmm. heads. And so even in any other game, they instinctively have a give and take when they uh, quite often didn't before. And they also have an instinctive sense of when the scene is over and it's time to move on. And I'm much less often have to intervene and go, okay, this isn't going anywhere because it has taught them to do this without the tokens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I would add that I think as someone who's really keeps thinking about dropping $100 to buy an Arduin Grimoire, <laughs> um, uh, a, very, a very old sort of fantasy tread game supplement thing, I think that I come out of story games, yes, but I also have one foot way in tread game. Mm -hmm. And I think that I have a sort of working hypothesis, or maybe a hallucination, that tread games actually have a lot of this tech inside of them, but it can be hard to find sometimes. And so I think on a kind of pedagogical level, uh, or a hermeneutic level, it, having a system like this in your brain you can then be reading a text and say, oh, that sounds like an opportunity for compromise. And you can sort of, so it's, it's, it, it can also sort of bring out things that have probably been sort of a possibility in affordance within this text or within this play style for a long time, but you're just sort of finding a way to activate it with, on full thrusters. Yeah, 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 exactly, right? Um, I mean, you know, what's more trad game than gold, you know? What's more trad game than having a sweet sword? Hmm. You're right. What's an example? 
Emily, I think you had a thought. Yeah. Well, my thinking. thought was uh, before the uh, the question about an example. So I'll say that. And you think about what the yeah. Hella sword was being. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so I've played a drama system with several people that were very into trad games, usually 3.5 D&D. And uh, it's been, it was an interesting experience because I definitely come from a very sort of story game background. And... Um, they came from a background in which most sort of internal drama in a party was basically purely PvP, right? You were angry at your mate, and you wanted to kill them with your sword. And you either did or you didn't. And that can be really fun. Like, John and I are in several games where we do PvP against each other all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we haven't mentioned this, actually. Yeah. We used to be roommates. We um, played the same games together. My most recent character was explicitly made for... Your character's having a real cool story arc slash sapphic romance what if I was super annoying about it <laughs> and it was amazing it was, it great. was great we, had a, great we had a wonderful time so I, I really enjoy those things but one of the interesting things about uh, playing with people that are mostly used to PvP and, and sort of trad games at least in my experience was that as John said um, the theme of this game is really compromise and it's if you go into a situation where two people have history with each other, if two people are engaging with some stressful situation where they wa- both want something, then can they both win in some way? Can one of them come out not entirely ruined? Can one of them come out mostly happy? It was those sort of interactions that I saw them actually try out for the first time, sort of on a player-to-player basis rather than a player-to-NPC basis. And that was interesting because I think that there's a sense when you do it with your fellow players that it's almost more real than when you do it with NPCs. If you bargain with the blacksmith in your D&D game and the blacksmith is your friend who is also everyone else, mm-hmm. then it feels a little less rewarding, at least in my opinion, than when you convince your good friend to give you the magical armor that he really doesn't want to sell because it belonged to his grandfather, you know? there's almost a more sense that there's a sense that's almost more real and more that you've that you've done a better job you've won <laughs> there, there's something deep in the dna of the hobby that makes it hard to do interactive scenes and that is that for many people the first character conflict they run into is between the paladin and the thief <laughs> the thief wants to backstab mm-hmm, somebody mm-hmm. and the paladin wants to say no in the most self-righteous way possible. And there is a built-in tension because of the way that uh, F20 games are structured that, well, you just have the thing you have, the most important thing about your character is your alignment. Mm -hmm. And a few people occasionally drift in their alignment, and that's a catastrophe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the you know very earliest days, that that meant you you got a level drain mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. switching alignments. And of course, real it's like you compromised, <laughs> you lose uh, you know three weeks of dungeon crawling, and it sets up an irresolvable uh-huh, conflict uh-huh. as the core thing as part of your, your uh, party. And I think that even if for people who have never mm-hmm. played that, which is actually probably a smaller number than any of us would think it still sort of reverberates through the way that people interact. And so, uh, in a way, what uh, a mechanism like this or mechanisms in Monster Hearts or many of the other uh, great story games that you want to check out are all saying in a different way, but in real life, the paladin would compromise in Mm -hmm. some way with the thief. And it's like, why would you do that? Because you care about each other. Uh It's like, uh you know, that he would put his arm around, oh, yeah, but remember, you know, we're all in this together, or, you know, what would mom think, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, here, I'm going to, I'm going to, I was asked for examples, and I'll be be honest with you, I've been sitting here and be like, God, God John, what is an example? <laughs> um, so let me, let me, let me reframe a little bit. Maybe it's not that I think this stuff is in trad game, but much like, like they're ambiently waiting to be remembered, but maybe we can dream via the technology of the trad game along with the technology of of drama system and think, where are these things that could be there? Like alignment. What if we what if we reimagine alignment as a technology that's not just chaining us down, but about compromise and stuff like that, um, and about connection. So um, in the, the Fall of Delta Green game, um, instead of alignment, you have really more of like a drive. Yeah. And that drive can be something that is very positive or extremely negative. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things about the drive is that 
what motivates you towards that can change. And I think that, um, I don't think it works perfectly with the alignment system, frankly, because one of the things about, uh, especially trad games, is that that alignment system is, is quite, quite rigid. Mm-hmm. But with things like drives or, or motivations, you know, your motivation can be to do things in the name of altruism, but what you think is altruism can absolutely change over time. And um, I think that there's a way to shepherd that a little bit into the, um, the alignment system in that, yeah, you're, let's say, lawful good, but your thought of what good is can shift over time. <laughs> Are you a paladin who believes that maybe now, uh, maybe murder is good sometimes? That could be something that uh, you, you work on, you know? Well, it, it has a, a statement of liberational aspiration. Uh-huh. I would say you have nothing to lose but your detect evil spells. <laughs> so <laughs> what I do when I run F20 is I say, there's no alignment. What are you talking about? And the paladin player who played a paladin in order to enjoy self-righteously saying no to people, uh, <laughs> he became a little frustrated when it's like, well, you have your code of ethics and you're detecting evil. Well, so who's evil to you? Uh-huh. And I think that is actually a, a way to, I, I think essentially the problems of uh, the intersection between classic alignment uh-huh. and realistic human, recognizable yeah, human beings yeah, yeah. are kind of ir- ir- irreconcilable. Uh-huh. And here an audience member uh, points out that in a trad game where you're trying to bring in more dramatic interaction, the, the GM also has to buy in. In this case, suggesting that alignment, which we've discussed as being a, a barrier to a certain kinds of interaction, they'll need to adjust that as well. Although I guess a, a midpoint argument there is if you keep the party within one band of the alignment system, right? That if everybody's good, you're not arguing over whether it's okay to murder people, but you're arguing about, you know, is it better to be uptight or loosey-goosey or not care? Um, but I, I personally find it more interesting to just remove alignment. One, one last thing. So the drama system is, of course, within Hillfolk, which is set in the Iron Age. And I think that that's a really interesting thing because it also allows players to essentially allow themselves to put themselves in the mindset of someone living in the Iron Age, in which a time in which many horrible things, many, many horrible, horrible things were considered much more ordinary and quote-unquote neutral than today. And so aligning yourself with what you consider to be good can be much more powerful and, um, frankly, world-breaking than uh, it might otherwise be. You know, the, the historicity of the time also has an element of play in whatever moral alignment you are thinking of. Build a financial firebreak around this podcast, shoulder to shoulder with such beloved Patreon backers as Scott Jones, Tone Malazzo, Tony Camp, Alex Johnston, and Tenant Reed. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, at the behest of estimable backer Michael Kuehl, we have the following. Why did you create the famous 18-and-a-half-minute gap in the Watergate tapes? What horror would have happened if it had been heard by the world? So this is keying off our recent segment on using Watergate as the uh, inspiration for a burglary-themed, everything-goes-wrong campaign. But Michael wants to know, Ken, in your in your other job as a chrononaut, what did you have to do with that uh, famous gap in the tape? All right, so we begin, as with all things Watergate, with Lyndon Johnson, who had a thoroughgoing taping system for the Oval Office and for all of his presidential calls. And President Nixon gets in, and he says, well, we're taking all that out. We don't have tapes. We're not going to have surveillance in the White House. That would be incriminating. That was a terrible idea. And privately, all of Nixon's staff were like, oh, thank God. Richard Nixon is terrible with technology. He'll spoil it somehow. So they uh, pull it all out. And sure enough, President Nixon 
is going about his Nixon business, and he notices that people who leave meetings with Nixon are always saying different things than what Nixon thought happened in the meeting. They'll be like, well, the president wants such and such to happen. And he's like, I wanted not that to happen. Yeah, and so that's a problem that's never before happened. Never before the happened. The solution is to tape everything. The t- solution is to tape everything. And, in fact, it's basically the solution came from LBJ, who said, you know, when I was president, we had a taping system. I don't know what you guys are doing. And so, yes. So, they, to, sorry to digress, but do we know that LBJ or Nixon ever listened to or used the tapes for their supposed purpose? Did this ever work? Did LBJ listen to himself? I mean, we don't know a ton about LBJ's taping system because he cleverly did not get involved in a third-rate burglary, or rather he didn't get right, caught. And we haven't gotten to that volume of the Robert Caro biographies yet. In a, in a third-rate burglary. But I assume both Nixon and Johnson are petty and vindictive people, so I'm sure, yes, they did use the tapes for their purpose of, go back and find out if I actually said that, if, if, if he's lying. And then it was someone's job to say, oh my God, he actually said that, and then still say to the president, nope, he's lying, because you haven't solved the fundamental problem, and the president doesn't want to be wrong. But anyway, I don't know for sure that there was ever some moment where the the tapes uh, proved their their purpose. Oh, there was a brief period where they tried to get uh, General Vernon Walters, who had a photographic memory, and they said, why don't you just sit in all the meetings? You've got all the clearances, and you can just remember everything that was said. Yeah, you have nothing else to do. General General Walters said, I am a general. I have stuff to do. I am not your secretary. And uh, Haldeman had to sort of slink away. Chief of Staff Haldeman, H.R. Haldeman, who will come back into the story. Right. That posits sort of in a fantasy world, you would have like rememberers who hang around the royal court. But then the rememberers would also have to be super trustworthy or, you know, somehow magically constrained. Right. Well, the beginning of the adventure is you have to get the um, remember out of the, the court. Right. Because he he's just remembering something he's not supposed to. But we digress yet again. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we continue to do that. So anyway, he's using his tape system. And Nixon's secretary, uh, Rosemary Woods's job was to transcribe the tapes. So that you don't have to go back and listen to them. You just look at the files. Right. And she may be highlighting right. times when Nixon is right. Right. And so she's transcribing the tapes of a conversation between Haldeman and Nixon, Haldeman, again, the chief of staff for Nixon, on June 20th, 1972. And she's transcribing this on September 29th, 1973, which tells you something about the backlog. And she said that she went to answer a phone call and accidentally stepped on the record pedal instead of the stop pedal on her tape machine and while she was on the call she must have just recorded blankness over the tape and right. because she this, was on a call she didn't look down under the desk and see you there pressing down on the right pedal. that's that's and uh and sure enough she demonstrated that if you lean way back in your chair that can work and i don't know that rosemary woods never leaned back in her chair i'm sure she, she did she had a hard job but then she said it was only a five minute phone call and she has no idea what the other 13 minute gap is so Rosemary was willing to do the literally modified limited hangout, but not the whole thing. Um, Haig, Alexander Haig, who at that time was weaseling around in the White House, theorized that Nixon just taped over it himself while trying to listen to a conversation, because as mentioned, he was terrible with tape machines. Right. Except he was getting transcripts. Right. Yeah. Well, who can say? Right. So the, uh, the gap occurs during a conversation between Nixon and Haldeman about the break-in, uh, about the, the news of, of Watergate. Right, now, because this, if this was just like a gap in a tape about, you know, the urban renewal campaign or, right, or agricultural policy, <laughs> agricultural policy, this would not be a big story. Right. But probably the reason she's transcribing these tapes from that era is that Haldeman has gone through his diary and said, oh, I talked with Nixon about Watergate. We'd better transcribe those tapes so that we have a record of what's happening for the uh, legal case that is boiling yes. up right now. Did we commit any crimes on those tapes? <laughs> Did we do crimes? Transcribe them, Rosemary. And then it turns out that an entirely different tape, a tape from June 23rd, 1972, has them doing crimes. Has Nixon literally saying, tell the CIA to tell the FBI to back off on this investigation and, and bury it, or it'll bring up the whole Bay of Pigs thing again. And right, and that's a famous smoking gun tape. That's the famous smoking gun tape. And this argues that if they were deliberately cutting things out of tapes, that this is the one that they would have, there'd be 18 minutes missing from this tape, not from the 
probably relatively anodyne, but maybe not that anodyne, other conversation. Right. So the, the, the counter theory, of course, being that if this is the one they didn't erase, the one that they did erase must have been even worse. Must have been even worse, which is Michael Kuehl's theory and very possibly what happened. So that's the story of the tapes. And the tapes get released over Nixon's legal objections. He says it's executive privilege. The judge in the case, I think it's Judge Sirica, is like, I don't think that's the case at all. I think this is material evidence in a criminal case. And it goes to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court rules eight to zero. These tapes are materially relevant. You have to release them. You're not above the law. And this is the point at which Nixon says, I'm not above the law. Well, now being president's not any fun. A theme that will later be returned to. Yes, but the but the tapes come out, and even Nixon's lawyers are like, we can think of no good reason for any of this to have happened. <laughs> it just it must have been, you know, some sort of random chit-chat that just sounded like committing a crime. So there we are. So that's the, the story of, of, of the Watergate tapes. Now, the fun fact is that Way after Nixon died, his estate finally won the legal case that said all of these tapes are the property of Richard Nixon and you you shouldn't have kept them the National Archives, but by then it was too late. So uh, they certainly shouldn't have published them and done everything else that they did. But that's, you know, one of those things that just uh, justice moves slow. So anyway, the, the question is, what is on that 18 and a half minute gap? Because as you theorize, if they didn't erase the smoking gun, this must have been a smoking cannon an even bigger case. Now, uh, Robin, I don't know if you're familiar with the beloved musical combo Tenacious D. I am, in fact. Right. And they have a song called uh, The Greatest Song in the World, parentheses, Tribute, in which Jack Black says, this is not the greatest song in the world. This is a tribute. Obviously, Robin, I can't say what was on the 18 and a half minute gap. That's literally the whole point of erasing the 18 and a half minute gap is so that people don't say it. But this is the kind of thing that might have been on the 18 and a half minute gap if it was only sort of bad. Got me? Yes. All right. So February 8th, 1972, Mariner 9 sends back photos from Mars of pyramids in the Elysium Planitia zone of Mars. Those pyramids, by the way, stand up to Global Surveyor and Viking. They're still there on the, on the photos. Early February... Triangular UFO seen over Sarajevo. Nothing bad's ever happened over Sarajevo, Robin. April 14th, triangular UFO seen over Waterbury, Connecticut. Nixon has gone to Moscow and signed the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty in uh, June. The Soviet research ship, the submarine research ship Musan, sees a wheel and cylinder UFO over Bermuda. Something's happening. Something with the Russians. Something with us. Mysterious triangular UFO getting closer from Sarajevo. Pyramids on Mars. So what might have happened is Nixon and Haldeman are talking about Watergate, or Haldeman writes in his notes, today we're going to talk about Watergate, and then goes into Nixon and says, we're going to start talking about Watergate, but this is actually about that triangular UFO pyramids on Mars situation that we've been keeping our eye on. And they explain what the position of the federal government is going to be in these uh, UFO aliens that are apparently involved with the East Bloc as well. And did Nixon and Brezhnev at the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty write a little except for shooting at UFOs thing in? We don't know. It's a secret treaty. Who can say? Because the time that they talk about it, and again, Nixon knows that there's a tape system. He's like, we got to keep this off, but this is important breaking news. We'll just erase it later, we hope, if we remember. Maybe they didn't remember. Maybe someone else had to erase it. Maybe someone crouched in the knee well while Rosemary Woods took a phone call. Who can say? But someone did it. That's not what happened, Robin, despite the fact that H.R. Haldeman later worked with Buzz Aldrin on a hotel franchise deal in Moscow in 1990. Obviously, that's just a coincidence, Robin. Nothing of the kind. No U.S.-Soviet Nixon-Brezhnev anti-UFO policy was formulated in June of 1972. That would be crazy. But maybe, maybe the CIA is like, we can do one of these two things. We can either make Watergate go away or we can deal with these UFOs. Pick one. That's just a theory. Right. And so now that you've said this didn't happen, we know for a fact that it didn't because people are hearing it on a podcast. Right. Therefore, you said it didn't happen. It didn't. 
It didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, you know, Rosemary Woods, um, uh, you know, doing her Rosemary stretch. That's what happened. Right. And so people who want to take this and run a moon dust men scenario that brings in the uh, gap in the Watergate tapes, you're doing something that's based purely on fiction. Exactly. You have no connection to whatever a desperate President Nixon seeing the writing on the walls may or may not have authorized there in the closing months of his term in 1973. Who can say? Right. Well, it's it's, it's sad to end uh, a podcast uh, for another week on a note of something that didn't happen, but that's... You know, that's the way the ball bounces sometimes. Every now and again, Robin, we have to enter the realms of fiction. I know that we like to keep this as firmly based as any story in the Washington Post, but right. sometimes we just make stuff up. Right. And so if you want to hear the 18 and a half minute gap after uh, we end the uh, podcast, just set a timer for 18 and a half minutes and you'll be able to hear the silence that you would hear if you were listening to the erase tape. With just a little unknown buzzing. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Arc Dream. Dork Tower and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Your character absolutely would support this podcast. Joining esteemed backers... Ian Nystrom. Joshua Randall. Yuri Horneman. Kelly Fisher. And Scott Stefanski. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Grab our latest design, Turn Undead. Honor the security and compliance benefits of two-factor authentication. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Blue Sky, he's RobinDLaws.Bisky.Social. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>